0: Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for um, everyone who's here. We uh, praise you for your son, that we have hope and a reason to be here and gathered. We thank you that you um, saw fit to, to save us. And I uh, pray that us as a people would respond and worship this morning. I pray that we would uh, fight through the word to, to flourish for your glory, not for ours. And then... Um, <coughs> It would mean enough to us that we would be willing to do that. I pray this morning, Lord, that um, you be glorified in our worship and in our listening and our uh, application to our lives. That this would um, be glorifying to you. That it would be uh, something that changes our hearts if it's just for truth or if it's for uh, some other reason you see fit, Lord. I pray that it would be for you and you alone, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Morning. Glad y'all are joining us in the beautiful Jordan this morning, Jordan River. Um, We've got a couple of uh, ladies here in the pool with me, uh, Gina and Avery. Uh, We're going to be presenting them for membership this morning as well. But uh, Avery is coming this morning in baptism, wanting to make public her her trust in Christ. I thought I would share a couple of passages that um, I think are appropriate Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He blessed us in the beloved. I met with Gina and Avery yesterday and Gina shared with me that was it a sunrise or a sunset sunrise, sunrise. she uh, she said the lord really ministered to her in seeing just a really beautiful sunrise uh, this week that just lit up the sky with beams going in every direction and it just reminded her of god's grace toward this family uh, Gina is a single mom and um, she shared, she said, you know, uh, there could be a lot of reasons for trouble and difficulty, but yet God has blessed us and lavished grace on us. And I thought that was an appropriate passage. And want to just encourage Avery with to realize that it's a tremendous measure of grace that the Lord has blessed you with being raised in a home with a mom who knows the Lord. With a, an environment where you're hearing the gospel, that's an awesome grace. Another measure of grace is that he's quickened in your heart. To love Jesus. That's a sweet measure of grace. And then thirdly, for us, it's a measure of grace that we get to walk with you as a church family. It's a blessing to us. Uh, another passage I want to share with you is from 1 Peter. This is a passage that, that the Lord has kind of exposed to us as a church in these last couple of months. As we, A couple of months ago, we examined baptism up close. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now watch Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, being Noah leading a family (coughs) through the, the watery ordeal. Baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. There's nothing special about this water. I shared with Avery yesterday. There's no special detergent in this water. It's really frigid, I can tell you that. So these guys are suffering this morning, but there's no special detergent in this water. This water does not cleanse Avery, but what cleanses Avery is what it says comes next. Baptism corresponds to Noah and the eight persons going through the flood saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ that's the gospel right there folks that's appealing to god god i'm crossways with you and i want to reconcile with you and on my own i'm bankrupt but i'm reaching for the finished work of jesus christ and i'm claiming his work and it's in that act that god shows up in this moment that's what we realize. This is so much more than a symbolic event that's taking place in her life. This is a moment where God shows up, where Avery is making that appeal. I asked her yesterday, are you making that appeal? And she said, yes. So now we'll baptize her based on that appeal. Avery, do you have any hope of being saved apart from Christ alone? No. Are you trusting in Christ as your Savior and Lord? Yes. Avery, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is my sweet and awesome privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray, Let's pray for this family. Lord, what a sweet and awesome privilege to enjoy the baptismal waters today, to enjoy this appeal to you for a good conscience through the finished work of jesus christ lord i pray that that not be something that we only do on our baptism day but it's something that we do every single day lord thank you so much for this family we pray for avery and her journey we pray that she will be hard and fast after you that she will rage after you and that she will revel in you we love you so much lord we pray these things in christ's name amen john chapter 15 jesus says i am the true vine Lord, I so look forward to what's in store in these verses over the next weeks or months or years, however long you give us to unpack this. Lord, I pray that we'll be faithful to unpack it and dine on it and enjoy it, not as consumers but as worshipers. Lord, I pray that the Spirit will come alongside and bring us into all truth and show us what Christ has done show us how much we need him. I pray that you will soften our hearts, make us more attentive to the greatness of the gospel. Lord, also this morning, I want to thank you for a brother that means the world to me, Greg Fields, and for Tracy, so thankful for their friendship and so thankful for their partnership in ministry in Greenville pray for Westminster Church, Lord, that you will just grow them deep and grow them wide in your time and that you'll find them faithful and ready and beautiful for Christ's return. Lord, I'm so thankful for the fruit that we dine on week by week that's, interestingly enough, the fruit of, in many ways, Greg Field's ministry and what you have done and are doing in his life. So thankful for the sweet privilege of serving alongside them. Lord, also this morning, I want to thank you for two new lives and the irony of a family that was really done with having kids who adopted this week and a day later a family that we didn't think could have kids biologically who gave birth to one of your children. Lord, we are so thankful for little Faith Rodden and so thankful for little Ruby Cardwell and we're so surprised by your grace you're a good God and we love you so much. We turn these next few minutes over to you. I pray that you'll be enjoyed. I pray for an attentiveness that's beyond any one of us. I pray for a clarity that's I know this beyond me. I pray the spirit will have his way with us this morning. Praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> this morning we're going to be focusing on one verse. Uh, really kind of the first 5 Words of chapter fifteen. I read the whole the wholeness of it because I think it's appropriate to kind of get the big picture. We'll we'll probably do that every week, just so we don't lose sight of uh, the forest for a tree. But we're going to saturate ourselves with these first seventeen verses of the book of John chapter fifteen in these next few months. I feel like in some ways, um, I'm sure that if your house is like mine, then the Olympics has been on nearly every night. And I feel like Bodie Miller flying down the Super G this morning. Those guys, when they're doing the downhill, it just amazes me that they are willing to do what they're doing because they're just right on the verge of losing it. Maybe one leg up, one leg sprawled out, and they just, you know, barely barely hanging on to get to the bottom, and that's the way I feel like this sermon's going to be this morning. And I'll tell you why, because it's not tidy. The sermon this morning, I, I need to dra- drag this into the light for the sake of what will unfold in the next few minutes that he will uh, just go ahead and liberate me from this. I love to preach sermons that have nice, tidy how-tos and to-dos and hear and do. This sermon is not that. This sermon just is. This sermon is far less about how-tos and far more about the fear of the Lord. And just knowing who he is and knowing what Christ has done. You may not walk away this Sunday with a nice little tidy to-do list. I'd be shocked if you do. The Spirit may minister to you in some specific way and give you some specific ways to respond to what you've heard. But I think is more than anything this morning, this sermon by itself... The first sermon in John 15, we're going to be dealing with what this passage means more than we're we're going to be dealing with what it means to us. John 15 is an interesting chapter in our Bible. It's probably one of the most familiar passages in our Bible. Along with that, it's probably one of the most overly devotionalized chapters in our Bible. I need to uh, share something with you, along with an apology. I have a book here that someone recommended to me, someone in the body. So I want to apologize for what I'm about to say about this book that you recommended. I can't remember who it was. That's why I'm doing it publicly. The Secrets of the Vine, Bruce Wilkinson. Um, I think he's the guy that also wrote The Prayer of Jabez, a nice kind of cool, cool-looking little book. This is a devotional treatment of John 15. This book makes a beeline to Jesus and me which is easy to do with John 15, <laughs> but it does it irresponsibly. I'm not going to say it's a total rag, but I'm, I'm going to say that there are some things in here that are very dangerous because they miss the bigger picture and the bigger point. So I'm saying that publicly to the one who recommended me. I'm sorry if, I, if this God used this to really transform your life, then um, I apologize. Uh, but if somebody else has read it and really puts a lot on this. I want part of the role of preaching and exposing the truth is also what's saying not, isn't the truth. And again, this isn't a total rag, but it's got some things that, man, you can read it. In fact, I was reading it and I'm going, ooh, man, this can preach. Ooh, yeah, that's going to be awesome. Man, that's really going to hit some people and help some people. But then I'm exposing the passage as it stands alone and I'm going, wait a second. He took some liberties just maybe for the sake of making a good point. So, I want to be humble and careful about saying that, because the Lord can use anything. But ultimately, we want to be obedient to the text. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to figure out what this passage means before we go to what it means to us. We're not going to make a beeline to Jesus and me. We're going to hopefully go the route, the appropriate route, of going to what the passage is actually saying first. And then we'll get to Jesus and me, but we'll get to it by the right direction. And we can trust where we land is a robust, trustworthy place. Now, context for John chapter 15. <clears throat> We're moving to a new scene. You can ask Christy and ask Scott this is what stressed me out so much in the last few months in studying to preach John 15. Because we're moving to a new scene. And anytime you move to a new scene, a new setting, there's new dynamics, there's new points. And this is a very difficult transition to a new scene. The disciples have shared the final meal with Christ before this. He's identified his betrayer, and Judas has left the table. He's prepared his disciples for his departure. He said, I'm going someplace where you can't go. And for men who've left everything to follow him, you could imagine that being pretty alarming. But he tells them, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And then he lets them know it's time to leave. That's how John chapter 14 ends. John is the only gospel that deals with what is taught in these next few hours. Matthew, Mark, and Luke just jump almost to the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays like drops of blood and all his disciples are snoozing. John is the only one that deals with the teaching, The really the, the the rich next few chapters of the teaching that takes place in the next few minutes. We don't know where it actually took place. We know that when he says, depart from here, that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't know where the teaching actually took place. A couple years ago, Brad and I had the, um, Brad Cardwell and I had the privilege of going to the promised land, or the holy land, and... Um, we, got a, uh, we had a chance to walk from the old city, Jerusalem, over to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we did it early in the morning. We wanted to see the sunrise on Jerusalem. So we walked out of, the, uh, we left the south side of Jerusalem, out of what, I can't remember what it's called now, but what it would have been called then is the Dungate. And we walked, appropriate for us, walk out of the Dungate, and we walk uh, east over to the Kidron Valley, and you walk north the Kidron Valley a little ways. And then you go uphill. And it's straight up. Straight up to the Garden of Gethsemane. Straight up to the Mount of Olives. I just can't imagine that they were teaching and that John was making mental notes about, oh, I need to record this later as they're going up the Mount of Olives because it was brutal. But I've wondered, maybe it took place on the flat ground. Maybe it took place on the, in, as they're walking through the Kidron Valley. It's not a long trip. Maybe it was after they caught their breaths. When they got to the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus taught these things and the disciples tried to sort out what was unfolding. Maybe it was under some sort of ominous dusk the end of the day that these teachings are being shared. Wherever it took place, I just trust that that Jesus would have had the disciples' eye contact. He had the 11 there. He had the 11. He sort of had a little purified church. And I just trust that he had eye contact. And my hope and prayer is for us, for however long it takes us to get through these next couple of chapters, these next few hours, really, in this Garden of Gethsemane teaching, that we have eye contact, a real sober eye contact with our Lord through the written word. This is the purified church, the 11, sitting with their Lord, ready to hear his potent and final teaching. These first five words, I am the true vine. That's what I want to unpack first this morning. The first two words are I am. The book of John, traditionally, people say that has seven I am statements. An I am statement would be like someone showing up in Greenville and saying, Hey, my name's Yahweh. That'd be weird, that'd be shocking. And when Jesus says, I am the true true vine, he is making the statement that he is God. I'm actually going to share a quote. I hope I can find it. I thought I marked the page. I know I marked the page. Hey, here it is. I'm going to share a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson regarding the divinity of Christ. He says, divine as the life of Jesus is, what an outrage to represent it as tantamount to the universe. Isn't that weird? Divine as it is, it's an outrage to recognize it, represent it as tantamount. To seize one accidental good man is what he says. You hear that? To seize one accidental good man that happened to exist somewhere at some time and say to the newborn soul, behold thy pattern. Go into the harness of that past individual. Assume his manner. Speak his speech. This is the madness of Christendom. I turn my back on these usurpers. The soul always believes in itself. When I read that quote, I was reading this. The staff is working through this book. It's called, when People, Are Big and, when People Are Big and God is Small. I read that quote and I thought, that dude didn't know what Jesus said. For him to call him a good man, he didn't hear what he said. He didn't hear that Jesus showed up and said, I am. Hi, my name's Yahweh. He didn't say it in just a couple of places. He said it in traditionally seven places in the book of John. I say there's, there's nine. Here's where they are. John chapter 6, 51. Don't turn. Just listen. I am the living bread. John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. John 11, 25. I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then here in John 15, I am the true vine. Two more that I would say are very clear I am statements. It's John chapter 8, verse 58. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Hi, I'm Yahweh. And my favorite is when he walked on the water and the disciples were sore afraid. One of our King James, I think our King James version says that. They were sore afraid. That's really afraid. He's walking on the water. They see this thing. They think is an apparition. And he he doesn't say, hey, dudes, it's just me. Don't be afraid. In the original language, he says, I am. Do not be afraid. That's one of my favorites because he just shows that he owns gravity. He owns density. It's no surprise for Jesus to walk on the water. The greater shock is that God got in the boat. That's the greater shock. He says, I am. Do not be afraid. Anybody that calls Jesus a good man has not listened to what he said. Because he's either Lord or lunatic. He's Lord or lunatic. And Ralph Waldo Emerson apparently didn't hear him say, I am. He says, I am true. John chapter 1 verse 9 If you'd like to turn there, you can. I've got you turning some other places today. So, if you want to save your strength, you can do that. John chapter 1 verse 9 says, The true light, listen, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. This true light is speaking of Christ. He is the true light. A while back, I was teaching through Genesis, and I found it interesting that God made light three days I think, before he made the sun. Isn't that interesting? We don't have to look to the sun for light. We need to look to to God for light because he is the source of all light. It's appropriate that he says he is the true light in contrast to the sun, in contrast to the sunrise, as beautiful as it can be, in contrast to the moonlight. Those things are light, yes, but they're not the true light. They are light as they point to him. They are shadow as he is substance. They are type as he is reality. He is the supreme light. He is the genuine light. He is the true light. John chapter 6 verse 32 is another picture of what he says about truth. Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He is true bread as contrasted against manna. The the Israelites ate real bread the manna was real bread. It was a little wafer, and they ate it, and it tasted like bread, and it looked like bread. But what he's saying, to is that was shadow. I am substance. That is type. I am reality. He is what manna pointed to. He is the substance of that shadow. He's the fulfillment of that type. He is supreme, preeminent bread that gives eternal life manna fed the body he feeds the soul and like he is the true bread like he is the true light he is the true vine he is the true vine to some sort of shadow I'm not going to tell you what it is yet we know the shadow of him being the true bread is manna we know the shadow of him being the true light will be the sun or the moonlight but the shadow to him being a True vine. There is a type. There is a picture behind him being the true vine. And we need to see that shadow in order to understand the substance of him being the true vine. We need the shadow and the type and the picture in order to understand what's being said here about Christ. If we had been the disciples, we'd likely known all of that already. But here 2,000 years later, being a bunch of Gentiles... We likely have very little clue. I I confess that I didn't. I didn't have a clue to know what the shadow was behind this true vine. But we need to see the non-true vine in order to see the true vine in focus. So That's where we're going to spend today looking at the true vine. Turn to Isaiah chapter 5. I've got three passages that are four, excuse me, that I really want you to see this morning. And I'm gonna tell you right now, this, you're listening over the next few minutes, this preaching and this listening is gonna separate the men from the boys. I don't mean literally, but I mean in terms of listening. If you need dancing girls and, a, and light shows, you're gonna tune out. But if you can really engage and go, ooh, this is so much more important than the American Idol results, mmm. This is so much more important than the football stats, and you can really engage this, and you're really in for a treat. The vine, I'm going to acquaint you with what the picture is here. The vine was a well-known and familiar picture of, of the nation of Israel. When he says, I'm the true vine, the disciples would have understood that the false vine, or the other than true vine is a better way to put it, that he was speaking of, was the nation of Israel. The image of the vine was on coins found from the Maccabean era, 100, 150 or so years before Christ. The image of the vine was found over the entrance to the temple. Golden vines with big golden clusters of grapes. The image of the vine would have been embedded in their minds. They would have thought about Israel as he said, I'm the true vine. When he says, I'm the true vine, he's saying, I'm what Israel Isn't. (laughs) That's so good. I I hope that by the end of this message. That you just like love that statement. I am what Israel isn't. I am true where Israel was faithless. I am true where Israel failed. We're going to spend this morning. Examining the backdrop of the non-true vine. So that we can see the trueness of Christ as the vine and our place in him. We're going to examine the life of Israel relative their place with God. And we're going to look at that through the imagery of the vine. Because it's all over our Old Testaments. But this morning we're going to go to three places. I'll tell you where they are so you can have them bookmarked with your doilies or whatever you bring for, for bookmarks. Isaiah chapter 5. Psalm 80. Ezekiel 15 and Hosea 10. I'll share those again. Isaiah 5, Psalm 80, Ezekiel 15, and Hosea 10. Isaiah is an amazing book. It was written likely somewhere between 770 B.C. and 680 B.C. Between seven and 800 years before Christ. Isaiah is a mixture of... Um, Prophetic reality, here's where you failed, but redemptive promise. If you want to summarize the condition of Israel for the book of Isaiah, don't look, don't look here, just listen. It could be summarized like this, chapter 1, verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. You want to summarize the condition of the nation of Israel when Isaiah wrote these words? That passage is a great way to summarize it. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Here's some excerpts before we get to chapter 5. Just listen. Here's the state of the non-true vine. In verse 10 of chapter 1, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. What? He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Ooh. Scathing! What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. Apparently, they're still very religious. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul Hates, God says. He charges them. He says, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. I don't need a multitude of sacrifices. I need good religion that cares for orphans and widows. It says in verse 21 of chapter 1, he says, The faithful city has become a whore. Man, this is scathing. Just for a minute, imagine yourself being a Jew. Take on what he's saying about the condition of of the nation of Israel. He's called you Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's called you a whore. This is the state of the other than true vine. Here's some other excerpts. Chapter 2, you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Imagine striking hands like, like a handshake with the children of foreigners. Let's make a deal, sinful Canaanites. Let's make a deal, sinful Philistines. Let's make a deal, sinful neighbors. Let's be unequally yoked. That'll be awesome. Let's fill our houses with things from the east. Worldly junk is what he's saying. You stuffed your homes with the things of the world. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. That's the condition of the nation of Israel. That's the condition of the vine, the other than true vine. And now listen to chapter 5. Here's where he brings it out in the imagery the real condition of this nation. Isaiah starts out writing this, and then God takes on the words. First, Isaiah is the speaker. He says, let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. Isaiah is saying this about God. Let me sing a song about my God and his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked to it, or he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. That word for wild could be interpreted stinking, sour grapes. We have a crisper in our fridge, that little bottom drawer where you put grapes. And I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but sometimes it happens to us where you have a kind of a, a random stray grape that falls off the cluster, and it kind of migrates its way down to the bottom. And then about once every eight months or so when you really clean out the crisper and you look down there and you see that thing and you're like, ooh, what is that? He looked for it to yield good grapes, but it yielded a bunch of those. What is that thing? I don't even know what that is. Honey, can you come get this out? <laughs> Verse 3, and now, o inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between, now God is speaking. He says, Judge between me and my vineyard, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild, sour, stinking grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. This is God's promise to the nation of Israel for what they've done. And we're going to explore more about what they've done today. But this is God's promise. He says, I will remove the hedge around this vineyard. Some of y'all know the hedge I'm talking about because you got those hedges around your house where either the cat gets stuck behind it or the kid's ball gets stuck behind it. You're like, man, I can't get through there. That that ball's gone. Just forget about it, kids. That hedge is impassable. Imagine that hedge around the vineyard that protects the vineyard. He says, I'm going to remove that hedge and the vineyard shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. And it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds, for they rain no, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. See, there's 11 that sat with Jesus that night, in the, maybe the Garden of Gethsemane, as they heard him say, I'm the true vine, they would have thought about Israel. Oh, <laughs> he's saying he's replacing Israel. Because the nation of Israel identified themselves as the vine. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice. He looked for big ripe clusters of grapes. He looked for justice. But instead he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness. Big clusters of beautiful grapes. But instead he found an outcry from those who were receiving injustice. He looked for good fruit and he found some nastiness. He found that thing at the bottom of the crisper. He looked for obedience and he found empty religion. A multitude of sacrifices, but no regard for the orphan and widow. He looked for good, but he found evil. He looked for care for the widows and the fatherless, but rather he found oppression. He looked for faithfulness and instead what did he find? He found whoredom. He found houses full of things. From the east, a beautiful vineyard, well-planted, yielded, wild, stinking, sour grapes. So essentially, he's saying, why should I bother protecting that? There's nothing worth protecting. I planted it in a good place with good soil, and I cared for it. But I'm not going to protect it because of what it's become. I will not be mocked. You can almost hear him say. I will not be mocked. The attitude of the vine dresser is illustrated in a story from our New Testaments. Don't don't turn there. I just want you to listen. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. This is the day after Christ entered Jerusalem. The triumphant entry on his final days leading up to the cross. This event that I'm about to share with you would have taken place days, only a few days before this Garden of Gethsemane, John 15 teaching. This, although it's really distant for us, would have been very fresh on their minds, this event. Mark chapter 11, verse 12, it says, On the following day, this is the second day when he's in Jerusalem, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and this is Jesus, and he sees in the distance a fig tree in leaf. Looks good. Look at all those leaves in the distance. Mmm, I bet it's going to have some luscious figs on it. Look at all that sacrifice and all those offerings. I bet there's going to be some good fruit there. And he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he looked around in the leaves. And he found nothing but leaves where it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again because you're fruitless. What takes place next is him cleansing the temple. It's appropriate imagery. Now let me go to the temple where he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Sandwiched around this cleansing of the temple and cleansing of their bad religion is the other half of this story. In verse 20, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And I'm looking at it going, show enough, because God does not like fruitlessness. Man, you can have your leaves. You can have your multitude of sacrifices. He's looking for fruit. Give me some figs. Give me some grapes seems that God is not okay with fruitlessness or wild grapes. Turn to Psalm chapter 80. Psalm chapter 80 is the next picture of the nation of Israel as the vine. It's going to tell us something about the condition of the vine. Psalm 80 is a lament. A lament... Is like an audible cry to God. It's like a, a grief song. Listen to this lament, and I'll, tell you the, I'll give you the context once we get into it a tad. It's a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come save us. This lament, we don't know exactly when it was written, but most people or many people believe that it was written around 700 BC. About 100 years or so, well, depends on when Isaiah wrote these other words with this promise that I'm going to remove the hedge. 50 years, 60 years later. Possibly around 701 when a king named Sennacherib and the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem. That's possibly. We don't know for sure at the moment. But this psalmist, Asaph, whoever, one of the sons of Asaph, somebody is crying out to God. God, come save us. And you're going to hear this theme. Restore to us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? you fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You want to know why they were upset? If this was the Assyrians, you want to know why they're concerned? The Assyrians were so nasty that they would skin their enemies alive once they captured them. They would cut off their hands and their feet. They would gouge out their eyes. The Assyrians would cut off heads and make mounds of them. These guys were despicable. We don't know how many people or how many of the Assyrians were surrounding Jerusalem, if this is when this was written. But I'm going to tell you, it's a bunch. And I'm going to tell you how we know that in a minute. And they were bad dudes. Sennacherib's palace was in Nineveh. The Ninevites... The reason Jonah didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites is because they were so nasty. The Ninevites were so despicable. If there was a pregnant woman in, in, in the people that are in the city that they sacked, they would cut her open and pull the baby out and let both of them die. They wouldn't even put them out of their misery. Can you understand? Can we climb into this for a moment and be a Jew and cry with them? Restore to us, oh God. Come save us. My wife's pregnant. She's not. I'm saying, for example. I know how the word travels. Man, let's climb in this and tremble with the psalmist. O oh Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. See the Assyrians around Jerusalem? We're going to get them alive. It's going to be fun. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now listen, you brought us a vine out of Egypt. Here, Israel. You brought us as a people out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for this beautiful vine. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the rivers. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? Where the vine, God, remember? Why are you doing this? The boar from the forest ravages it. If this was during Sennacherib's time, I wonder if the psalmist wasn't thinking of the vile, not even kosher, critter. Sennacherib, as he said, the boar from the forest ravages your vineyard. And all that move in it, all that move in the field, feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. And for the son whom you made strong for yourself... They've burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of their face, of your face. We don't know when this was written. But if this was during the time of Sennacherib, you can understand why it's a lament. And they're identifying themselves as a a vine well planted. And as a hedge that looks like it's coming down. As a wall that looks like it's coming down. If this was Sennacherib, the good news is it didn't happen here. They actually had a king worth something, a guy named Hezekiah. And actually 185,000 of those Assyrians that surrounded Jerusalem didn't wake up the next morning. 185,000 were dead. (laughs) That's a lot. So there must have been a bunch more around them. God spared them then. And he listened to the psalmist begging, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. But I'm going to tell you this, Israel at this point, 700 years before Christ, is in grave danger because you're about to see something really ugly happen. Because he does what he says he's going to do. He's going to turn them over. He's going to remove the hedge and break down the wall. He did that in 597 B.C. was the first time. And 586 was the second. That's when a man named Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came to Israel and started taking the finest and the best. They took guys like Daniel. They took guys like Hananiah, later called Shadrach, a guy named Mishael, later called Meshach, a guy named Azariah, later called Abednego. They took Israel's finest and best, a guy named Ezekiel, and took him to Babylon. Removed from their home, if we can imagine what that might be like, imagine your son, Imagine someone coming into Greenville and taking your son by the nape of his neck and loading him up on a truck and you never seeing him again. Imagine the finest and the best being removed from your country. The hedge went down, the walls went down, and the boar ravaged the vineyard because it produced wild, sour, stinking grapes. Turn to Ezekiel 15. We could place the book of Ezekiel around 575 B.C. So if you were paying attention to the dates I just gave you, 597 and 586. Also, what took place in 586 was Solomon's temple, the pride of Israel, is leveled, rubble. So possibly 10, 15 years later... Ezekiel writes these words. This, is, this Ezekiel 15 is like the anti-John 15. It's like the negative to the positive. Listen to what unfolds in this short little chapter. And this is written by a guy who's in exile. One of those best and finest that I just talked about, removed from Greenville by the nape of his neck. Here's what he says. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the the trees of the forest. Is wood taken from it to make anything? He's talking about actually the wood of a vine. And listen to what he says about the wood of a grapevine. He says, do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it's given to the fire for fuel. The wood of a vine that doesn't produce grapes. See, at this point, he's already resigned himself, or God has already resigned this nation of Israel. It doesn't even produce fruit. And now it's just fodder for fire. The once luxuriant vine is now just wood. And he says, you know what? It's not even a good piece of wood. You can't even use it for a walking stick. You can't cut a little piece of it and drive it in the wall and hang your hat on it. It's good for nothing. When the fire has consumed both ends of it, and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest which I have given to the fire for fuel, so, listen, have I given up on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord. Our God will not be mocked for fruitlessness. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. That's the state of the vine. Israel, as the vine, is in bad shape. This vine is made for fruit-bearing, but even the wood is useless for anything but fruit-bearing. That's all it does. And it hasn't even done that. Like the wood of an unproductive vine is good for only fuel for a fire, so God has given up on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They've acted faithlessly. God is not okay with faithlessness. And fruitlessness. So off to the fire they go. As I was working on the sermon and trying to reckon with what actually Israel did, I'm asking this question What made them a bad vine? If we haven't seen enough of that already, what made them a bad vine? We get some clues right here in Ezekiel chapter 15. If you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, you know what the next chapter is about. I'm going to tell you right now, it is the most graphic chapter in our Bible, and it's about whoredom. In Ezekiel 16, God says, you were a bloody baby out in the field. You were cast. Nobody cared about you, but I picked you up. I cleaned you up. I clothed you. I raised you here. I planted you in rich soil, and what did you do? You ran off with every passerby. You trusted in your beauty and you played the whore because of your renown and you lavished your whorings on any passerby. He says of Israel, he says, You're an adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. Most whores take money for their work. You pay money. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you're different. You're not even a respectable whore. If we can be a Jew for the morning, I hope you feel beaten. I hope you recognize the bankruptcy of this vine. Man, this is the backdrop for when Jesus says, I'm the true vine. If you feel like a Jew and you're like, man, I need to take a bath. Woo! I'm in trouble. Good. You're listening. Because God's chosen people, man, they were a mess. The best they had to offer was still filthy rags. And Ezekiel places this condition of the vine right next to whoredom. Jeremiah does the same thing. I'm not going to read the passage. I'll give it to you. It's chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. He likens their whore to He says, under every green tree, you hunker down like the whore. Under my blessings, in the shade of my blessings, you whore with the world. And he says, your vine is in bad shape. You have wild grapes that have come from a choice vine. Turn to Hosea chapter 10. This is going to be the picture of judgment on a bad vine. Hosea chapter 10 It says, Israel is a luxuriant vine. We know it's well planted. We know it's well cared for like the God that found the bloody baby and cleansed, cleansed the baby, dressed the baby, raised it up. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit, but we know it's bad fruit. It says, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. And those aren't altars to God, unfortunately. They're altars to Canaanite gods. They're altars to Baal. They're altars to whoever, whatever the neighbors were offering. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Those pillars are the high places where they offered sacrifices to foreign gods. He says, Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. The more God blessed the nation of Israel, the more they hoard. The more God improved their situation, the more they improved their false worship. It'd be like you raising your kids, changing their diapers, feeding them, clothing them, teaching them from day one. And when they get old enough, they thumb their nose at you. And they take your best that you're offering to them. And they take your resources that you're offering them, the time that you're offering them, the efforts that you're offering them, and they thumb their nose at you. And they actually, just imagine, you're blessing your child with maybe some money to go to college or something. And they go blow it on the things of the world. Thumb in their nose at the goodness that you've extended to them. The more God prospered them, the more they sinned. They did what Moses warned them not to do. I'm going to show you two more passages. You can turn there if you like or you can just listen. Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you want to just listen, listen. Moses warned them, Listen. He said, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. Look at what I've done. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. You can hear him say, I solemnly warn you today, I'm taking down your hedge. I'm taking down your wall. And I'm going to let the boars have their way with you. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Moses gives them a severe, serious warning where hopefully they would have swallowed hard. He warned them, and they did exactly what he warned them against. And then God, in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, he did what he said he was going to do. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Hear, cursed fig tree. Hear, passers by ravaging the vineyard. Curse shall you be in the city, and curse shall you be in the field. Curse shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Curse shall you be when you come in, and curse shall you be when you go out. Get it? The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. Do we even know this, God? We've got to know this shadow. We've got to know the state of Israel. We've got to know the righteous anger of a holy God before we can see what we have in Jesus Christ. If we can be a Jew for the morning and we can quake hearing this, they shall pursue you till you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you till you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them, And flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead bodies shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with the tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. Lord will strike you with madness, with blindness, with confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday in the blind, as the blind grope in the darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. And there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but guess what? Another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey will be seized before your face, but you shall not be, it shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. Hear that? This was written about a thousand years before Babylonian exile. God did exactly what he said he would do. Hear Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezekiel. Your sons and your daughters will be given to another people. While your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long. But guess what? You shall be helpless. We've got to have this as a backdrop to understand what we have in Christ. See, the vine Israel had been blessed beyond measure. But it proved to bear bad, sour, stinking fruit. They found pleasures in the things and activities other than God. Their houses were full of the trappings of the world. The more God blessed them, the more they sinned. I'm going to tell you this right now. The only way for us to really understand John 15 is with this as a backdrop. The only way for us to understand what we actually have in Christ, the true vine, is to understand the bankruptcy of the false vine. We've got to look at Israel And quake. If Israel was our vine, I hope you'd see that we'd be doomed. I hope you see how much we need a new, true vine. Israel was God's chosen people, yet they're bankrupt, they're toast. The difference between wild grapes and good fruit is Christ, period. The difference between being cut away and thrown into the fire and actually used for what you were made for is Christ, period. We cannot see the riches of this passage except but the backdrop of Israel. He's the difference between bearing fruit and not. He's the difference between being thrown out or being used. We have the Lord's Supper right now. And I want to share a passage with you before we do that. Actually, two. Psalm chapter 80 goes on. If you want to turn back there, if you had your doily in there, you can go back and look. Psalm chapter 80, verse verse 17. Listen to what the psalmist says. If this was when Sennacherib and the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem... Even if it wasn't, there's obviously something really bad going on. And the psalmist cries out, he says, God, let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. I don't even think he even knew who he's writing about. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. The psalmist right here longs for a son of man, with a strong hand of God on his shoulder, with the strength to do what their vine couldn't do. He says, "Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved." The son of man is familiar to us. It comes up in Luke chapter eighteen share this passage and then we'll have the supper together and taking the twelve he said to them see we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the son of man here son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. I'm reading that passage and thinking about the nation of Israel spared from the Assyrians. And in this case, the true vine is not spared. The true vine is turned over to the Gentiles so that they can have their way with him in our stead in our place. That's the gospel. As we take the supper together, I want us to be mindful of the Son of Man being delivered over in our place. I want us to be mindful of the true bread that He is and the true vine that He is as we take of the bread and the cup. I don't think they should make Bibles that are just the New Testament. It's sort of like getting the punchline of a joke. Somebody just tells you the punchline, and you're supposed to really embrace it. I don't get it. We've got to eat these difficult realities. We've got to quake with those 11 that night and go, what? We need a new vine. And then hear him say the words, I'm the true vine. We've got to let that hit us, but we've got to quake first. It's almost like we have to become a bankrupt Jew first before we can really become a worshiping Christian. We don't know what we've got in Jesus, except that we get to know the white-hot holy wrath of God and our sinfulness. Man, when you see, I hope, I hope that you quaked a little bit this morning. I hope that we all had a little encounter with the fear of the Lord and the greatness of God and the goodness that we have in Jesus. As we take this drink right now, let's enjoy the true bread that we just just remembered and the true vine that this is the fruit of. Let's take this together remembering that. I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship in giving and in one more song. I think there's one more, right? One? And then I'm going to um, have a couple of quick announcements. Let's pray. God, you are amazing. We are so um, ravaged by your goodness, by the grace that you've lavished on us in the finished work of Jesus Christ as we see the trueness of the vine. Lord, I just pray that we enjoy what you have done in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we will just enjoy Your goodness in revealing it to us, not just doing it, but actually leading men, inspiring men to record the words and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives to expose these truths in our lives that give us life. Lord, I'm thankful that Jesus showed up and said, I'm God. And I'm thankful that it's true, that he wasn't just a good man. Lord, I'm thankful that he paid the price for us and achieved what we couldn't do. I'm thankful that he made up for where Israel left off, where Ben left off, where the McGraws leave off, where the people of Cross Point Fellowship leave off. I'm thankful that he made up the difference and then some. Lord, we cast all of our hope on him. We have no hope apart from him. We worship you and thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all stand and let's sing. A couple quick announcements. I want to share something with you, too. I was thinking about it would be appropriate to share. Again, I can't remember who recommended the book, so I really am sorry if it's meant a lot to you. Um, I mean, I, I know God can use things like this. I'm thinking of an example of a book that he used in my life at one time. Um, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. John Orberg, I think is the, guy, the guy's name. Um, he can use a devotional book, but a devotional book can um, be unfaithful to the point, point. and th- this guy takes some liberties, and it, you might be wondering, well, how do I know, you know, lots of people open their Bible on Sunday mornings, lots of people preach, lots of people write books. How do you know who's being faithful? But if people are saying different things, a good, a good test, a litmus test, is does it make much of man or make much of God? Because you can make, can't make much of both. It's not saying we're worthless. I mean, nobody's saying we're worthless. We have worth because God made us. But it's saying we're unworthy. They're two different things. We are unworthy of the what goodness that God has lavished on us. Engaging our, our unworthness, if I can make that word up. And God's grace, that's where grace shows up. We can't even know his grace except that we're honest about who we are and what we've done. And we see what he's done. So a good litmus test. If, if you're hearing somebody open the Bible and teach and preach and expose, or reading somebody, write a book, if it makes much of man, it's, it's not faithful to the original passage or to the, to the Bible. It, it puts us at the center of the gospel. We're not at the center of the gospel. The glory of God is at the center of the gospel. So the teaching and the preaching and books need to make much of God. And our value is found in His grace. Okay, so I, I don't want to say that God can't use a book like this. So if you've read a book like this or you want to, if, if you need something to read, which you should be reading something, um, talk to me. I've got an office full of stuff. This would be a good one to read. It's be, when people are big and God is small, you know, that's one, but there's other stuff. But um, if you're looking for something to read, I would encourage that. And I'll also share with you briefly, if you need a good study Bible, I preached from my, my broadsword this morning. Whoosh, whoosh. This big ESV study Bible is awesome. 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 I mean, you, you cannot beat the notes, the connections, um, the exposition that's even in here. It's wonderful. If you're looking for a good study Bible, I would highly encourage that. And that leads me to my first announcement. At 4.30 today, I'm meeting with some teachers who teach on Wednesday nights, and we're going to be talking about teaching children. Um, one of the things that, that has happened to us in the last six years over a period of time, seven years almost, is God has kind of pulled away the layers of the onion of expectations about what children's ministry is supposed to be and about what youth ministry is supposed to be. And he's left it at kind of this center marrow that just says, man, just unpack the Bible. Set it loose. Set it loose with good teaching, prepared teaching by gifted teachers. It's just as simple as that. So our goal on Wednesday nights, if you're wondering what we do on Wednesday nights, if you're kind of weighing, well, what, there's Awanas and things like that. Man, Awanas is great. I don't, ever, I, don't, I don't know that much about it, but I assume it's great. What are we doing? We're just teaching the Bible. What curriculum are we using? So what we're going to be talking about this afternoon at 4.30, for anybody that wants to participate in this, is about equipping you to do that. You just you don't get out of bed and just okay, I know how to do that. <laughs> I know how to teach the Bible to anybody. You need to learn how to do that. And we're going to talk about that at 4.30 today. So if you feel ill-equipped, good. You are, probably. Uh, if you feel inadequate, you are that. But thankfully, it's the Holy Spirit that exposes the truth to the kids. We just set it loose. So we're going to be talking today at 4.30 about how to set it loose in the lives of kids. If you're not... Uh, doing anything on Wednesday nights and the Lord has really put it on your heart that you need to be spent in some way I was convicted uh, with the family reading through Mark where um, Jesus was you know they're trying to shuffle the kids away from Jesus he says no bring them to me man the kingdom belongs to them let's, let's pour ourselves into them that's tomorrow's church that's what I was convicted about I, honestly I was thinking I'd sit in here when Scott taught on Wednesday nights And I kind of got convicted about that. I'm like, man, that's kind of redundant. If Scott's in here teaching and I'm just kind of chiming in here and there, let me go pour into those dudes tomorrow's church because we'll be marrying them and baptizing their children in the future. So let's pour ourselves into tomorrow's church. If you want to be part of that, I think that's sweetness. So if you don't know how to do that, that's okay. That's what we're talking about at 430 today. So that'll be right here. Isn't that right? here? In here? Oh, there's Annie. And the other announcement is tonight at 6 o'clock. And our announcements are long. At 6 o'clock, we have a fish dinner. You'll understand why it's fish. Tonight, we'll have a short time of worship and song here in the sanctuary. And then a, um, we'll dine on some fried fish together afterwards. And we have gobs of fish. Um, so if you're, if you're wondering, hey, I hadn't paid my fees for that or whatever. There are no fees. You're, you're welcome to come, so everybody's welcome. Even if you're a guest this morning, uh, we'll, we'll be in here at 6 p.m., and uh, then we'll move over to that building next to us. We have some lights strung in there. We don't have electricity in there yet, but we have some lights strung in there, and we're going to have a meal in there together and be cool, and you'll understand why tonight at 6 p.m. And the last announcement is uh, I want to introduce a family. Gina and Avery, y'all come on up. Where are you? You met them this morning in the baptism pool and uh, they're neighbors of ours right down the street a little bit. Um, I know a lot of folks in Greenville um, and uh, many of y'all probably know Gina and Avery and they are coming this morning. I spent some time talking with them about membership and they said, man, we want to make this our our home. We want want everybody to know that we stand in agreement with this body and we want to worship with this body. We want to be known and knowing and um, I've talked to them about what's involved with that, and they, uh, they want uh, to make that commitment today. So I encourage you to come get to know them and come get to know the riches that God has lavished, the grace that God has lavished on them. And uh, it is an opportunity to remind the body that the sweetest, sweetest sweetness of religion is caring for the fatherless and the widow. And they, they are neither of those but a single mom and a young daughter. That's a sweet privilege to pour yourself out on them and into them. And uh, it's a it's a sweet ministry that's in store. We're looking forward to it. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. <clears throat> Y'all come over here. Come stand this way. Y'all stay up here for a minute afterwards, okay? God, thank you so much for the sweet privilege of, of enjoying you this morning. So thankful for the way our morning started out with testimony and with an appeal to you for a good conscience. Uh, Lord, we are so blessed to have the opportunity and privilege of walking with Gina and Avery And I pray that you'll find us uh, doing that faithfully. I pray that you'll find them well-equipped. I pray that you'll find them worshiping between Sundays. I pray that you'll be on their lips in their homes and um, that they'll enjoy you between Sundays. I pray that they'll find other families coming alongside them and that through small groups and just through um, relationships that just happen, that uh, they'll be um, enjoying the sweet journey together. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.